Welcome to the Biden Transition Podcast, the podcast that discusses how President Joe Biden and his new administration will tackle some of America's most pressing issues. For our sixth episode, we've invited Pat Garofalo, author and economic policy expert, to talk about antitrust laws and monopolies. How did the federal government's enforcement of antitrust laws over the past four decades pave the way for new monopolies? How have these large monopolies impacted Americans? And what can Congress and the Biden administration do to crack down on these massive corporations that are crushing their competition? Those questions and more coming up next. Welcome to the Biden Transition Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle McLean, with today's guest, Pat Garofalo. Pat is the Director of State and Local Policy at the think tank, the American Economic Liberties Project. Is also author of the book, The American Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs. Thanks so much for joining us, Pat. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. Pat, you and your team at the American Economic Liberties Project put out a massive report last month on how America essentially changed the way it enforces antitrust laws over the past four decades, a policy decision that allowed large corporations to consolidate power. As your report explained, we can do a better job regulating monopolies. I want to jump into the weeds, but first off, what is antitrust and how does it impact Americans? Totally. Yeah, that's a good question and a good place to start. And yeah, this was a a massive undertaking. We essentially wrote a book because it is a really broad area of policy. But at its core, antitrust is the set of laws and regulations that try and prevent the consolidation of private power and promote public power. So what does that mean? It means not allowing any one private corporate entity to amass so much power that it can then dictate terms to workers, to consumers, to other companies. It's trying to prevent situations in which one massive company could essentially boss the rest of the economy. How have Americans been affected by these monopolies? I know your report mentioned several things, like it causes inequality, rising healthcare costs, farm bankruptcies, reduced entrepreneurship and productivity and the decline of the free press. How are people being impacted by these monopolies? All that and more. I mean, there are so many examples. You can basically go sector by sector and find, if not an active monopoly today that should be dealt with, the potential for monopoly power to build. You can see it in the way in which workers get paid. If corporations have buying power over the price of labor, they can push down workers' wages. If corporations have outsized political influence, they can use that power to change regulations and laws to entrench themselves and to make it even more difficult to reduce their power later. You can see it in the way that they treat small businesses. If there's one giant monopoly in a sector, then they can boss around the small businesses and prevent them from ever competing on an even playing field. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff. You can We can basically go through sector by sector. You can see it in the way you travel. As airlines consolidated and there were fewer and fewer, air travel got more expensive and got worse and worse. You can see it in things like energy prices. When there are fewer and fewer firms available to sell energy, again, your costs go up. You can see it in retail. It used to be that there were thriving main streets with lots of little shops, and now we're stuck with Walmart and Target, and maybe those aren't necessarily the places you want to be shopping. You can see it in uh, the restaurant sector where giant brands like Yum! Brands buy up tons of little restaurant chains and turn them into these national chains and you lose local character in your neighborhoods when that happens. So you could basically go through every sector of the economy. And I'm hitting like the big ones, but these things are all over the place. There's a monopoly in the sale of cheerleading apparel. There's a monopoly in the sale of universal remote controls. There's all sorts of stuff out there where companies have rolled up sectors. And it's it's just a constant problem that we have to deal with in the economy. 
Yeah, as a reporter, I used to work for a company called Gatehouse Media, which was buying up a lot of the local newspapers around the country. They merged with another massive company doing the same thing called Gannett. Then Tribune was recently bought out by a massive hedge fund. It's absolutely insane how much power and influence a lot of these corporate media companies are gaining right now. And if you want to talk about the media, actually, local newspapers are squished between two different sets of monopolies. On the one side, they have, yeah, these private equity raiders who are coming in and buying them up and crushing whatever little bit of revenue is left. On the other side, you have Google and Facebook who have basically sucked up all the money that used to support good local journalism and taken it for themselves by monopolizing the digital ad market. All of that advertising money that used to pay for all the good local journalism that we saw now goes into Mark Zuckerberg's pocket and goes to fund Google. So you really see these local newspapers scooshed between these two countervailing powers. And that's bad to your earlier question about how this affects you. That's bad not just for the people who work at those papers, because now they can't get paid fairly and they end up having to go work for a PR firm. But that's bad for democracy. If there's no access to good local information, then your democracy gets worse. And we've actually seen in places that lose their local papers, democratic participation goes down, corruption goes up, incumbents for office win more often, there are fewer challengers for public office. There's this whole knock-on of democratic effects when you see local newspapers get squeezed by monopolists. And that happens in every sector of the economy. You can go thing by thing by thing and see how the accumulation of power by large corporate actors causes negative effects for workers, communities, consumers, you know, several steps down the line. Well, let's talk about Facebook and Google for a second here, because they are subject to a lot of different antitrust lawsuits. There seems to be a change in the tide of how we're enforcing these laws. Before, it seemed like laws weren't really enforced unless the monopoly affected consumers. But here, Facebook and Google are offering their services for free. What's going on with this? Yeah, so I think there has been a tiny bit of a change. And I think to talk about this properly, we sort of need to take a step back and talk about the evolution of antitrust law. So there's a really long storied history in the U.S. of vigorously enforcing antitrust law. You think about things like Standard Oil, like Ma Bell back in the day, companies that were very actively broken up by the U.S. government because they were too big, they'd accumulated too much power, and they were having too many negative effects across the economy for workers, for communities. And then about 40 years ago, that all changed because there was a push amongst a group of conservatives who are known as the Chicago School to change the conception of antitrust in the U.S. Prior to the rise of the Chicago School, antitrust enforcers used to focus on all of the negative effects that private power could cause. Does it drive down wages? Does it cause problems for democratic accountability? Are these giant monopolies able to crush small businesses and access to vital communication networks? But the Chicago School decided that the only thing that matters for antitrust is consumer welfare. And I'm going to throw that in air quotes, even though your listeners can't see me doing that, which is a phrase that means essentially prices. So the only thing that mattered to the Chicago School folks was the cost you paid for something. And if prices were going down, no matter how big the company in question was getting, it didn't matter. They weren't violating the antitrust laws. And so now, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, you're in, you know, 2000, 2010, 2020, you have these massive companies that are able to control giant swaths of the economy and do so while either driving down prices in the case of an Amazon or in the case of a Google or Facebook, providing their product for, again, air quote, free and modern antitrust doctrine just isn't equipped to deal with them. All those policies that came out of the Chicago School, they were more or less implemented during the Reagan administration, correct? Yeah, and it's not even policies. That's the interesting thing. There wasn't really a change in the laws. It was a change in the way the laws were enforced. The main U.S. anti-monopolization laws are on the books today. You know, they date back to the 1800s and 1900s. They're still there. 
Just people aren't enforcing them. So this really comes down to the people that you put in regulatory positions and into the antitrust division at the Department of Justice who have decided to buy into this conception of consumer welfare that isn't actually written down anywhere. Again, this is not like Congress went and passed a law and said, oh, you should only consider consumer welfare. This is like something dreamed up by enforcers and then validated by the courts. But it's not actually a law anywhere. The main anti-monopolization laws, they're there. They're on the books. Somebody wanted to go out and force them today, they absolutely could. So what have the courts been saying about all this? Yeah, the courts have sort of bought into this idea that prices are the only thing that matters. And that causes a problem, not just because, again, it allows for the rise of an Amazon, which can, by uh, virtue of its power over suppliers and small businesses, be constantly driving down prices while at the same time crushing all those businesses and causing long-term economic pain for everybody, but also then antitrust cases get bogged down in a fight over computer models, essentially. So now we're having an argument instead of, does Amazon have the power to tell a small business, pay up to use our distribution network, or we'll sync your listing onto page 17 and you'll go out of business, which is a, you know, that's a serious way in which Amazon wields its power. But that doesn't matter in the court case. What matters in the court case is the computer models and inputs that say whether or not Amazon has enough power over prices to reduce them further. And so court cases just get bogged down in this like economist nonsense over theoretical questions over prices. Whereas according to the laws that are on the books, all that should matter is if Amazon has the ability to smush small businesses if it wants to, which it absolutely does. But so there's this like nasty mind meld of the Chicago school and the courts that cause antitrust to sound really complicated when it's really, really not. It's really just about power and the ability of large corporations to take out workers, to take out small businesses and, and to push around lawmakers. So if it's all about just enforcement of these rules that are already in the books, it seems like a pretty simple solution. How has the Obama administration, Clinton administrations and other administrations kind of dealt with this and some of the fallout from the Reagan decision making? Yeah, not great. There is a lot of continuation amongst the last several administrations, both Democratic and Republican, to continue this tradition of using the consumer welfare standard and sort of ignoring other ways that power accumulates. The Democratic version of the Chicago School is called the post-Chicago School. And what they decided to focus on is instead of questioning the consumer welfare standard as a thing, as a concept, like, hey, maybe we should actually just throw the consumer welfare standard in the garbage and, and try something else. They decided to fight over the computer models. Let's have an argument over whether the economists get together in a room and say, oh, yes, firm X has the theoretical ability to raise or lower prices by Y percent. Let's fight over the numbers that go into that equation rather than the question of power. And that's something we really wanted to point out in our report, Courage to Learn, which is that this is really important, not just for economic reasons, but for political reasons. If you want to generate broad-based growth for everybody, and keep at bay the sort of forces that we've seen in the economy, political forces that led to the rise of a Donald Trump, that led to the Capitol insurrection, you need to get a handle on corporate power. Because if you don't, then all of your best intentions around economic growth are going to be impossible to achieve. You can see a world in which a really great COVID relief bill passes, but most of that money ends up winding up in the hands of landlords and private equity firms and hospital monopolies and not actually getting to the people on the ground who need it. And that's going to not just be bad for the economy and bad for those people who really need relief, but that's bad for you Democrats politically. So it's very important to address this problem because without it, you can't do a lot of the other things that you want to do as a Democratic administration. You can't do the sort of social safety net spending and the sort of equitable development 
that I know those folks want to do. So the enforcement is now done through this complex formula, figuring out whether any harm was caused. Before the Chicago School enforcement, how exactly did they determine whether a monopoly caused any harm and whether it caused any of those impacts that you mentioned earlier? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You looked at the ability of a firm to not only affect prices, but to affect other businesses downstream or to affect vital networks. For instance, once upon a time, a train company was not allowed to only sell to certain suppliers because it controlled this really vital network. And the courts and Congress said, if you hold a really vital network like a train network, we don't expect everybody to go out and build their own private train tracks. You have to treat every comer fairly. You have to be fair to all the businesses that want to access the tracks. You can't discriminate. You can't just have your own private businesses on the side and they're the only ones that are allowed to use the tracks. You're not allowed to use your hold over this spot to control commerce, even if that does mean that sometimes people pay a little bit more. If you could theoretically drive prices down by controlling that node, but by doing so also exclude all these other companies, you weren't allowed to do that. So it was much more about power and about power over different facets of the economy than solely focusing on the one thing that is prices. And again, Amazon is sort of a a perfect example. It controls this extremely important and key access point to the internet, not just for people looking to buy things, but for people looking to sell things. So it has an immense amount of power over small businesses because it really is one of the few ways that people that are shopping for stuff on the internet can see all that stuff. And so old antitrust auction would say, hey, Amazon, you control this really vital network, so you have to treat all comers fairly and you can't leverage your hold over this one network to benefit yourself in other ways. Current antitrust auction says, eh, whatever, Stuff on the internet is getting cheaper, so it doesn't matter what Amazon does. And Amazon is such a great example because it does use its power over that gateway to internet sales to boost the other parts of its business. It says to small businesses that are trying to sell on Amazon, well, if you want to have access to Prime subscribers and if you want to be in the top of the results, which are all anybody really looks at because you know a lot of internet shoppers are lazy and don't want to click to page two and three, you have to pay us to use our distribution network. So that means they're basically extorting money from small businesses. They're saying, you have to pay us to ship your stuff around. Don't use UPS, don't use FedEx, don't use USPS, don't use anything else. You have to use us or we boot you to page 17 of the results, essentially, or we won't let you have access to Prime. And so that is a thing that theoretically that's going to drive prices down, Amazon doing that, but that hurts small businesses that are trying to, to build themselves up and maybe someday create tons of jobs that Amazon is never going to create. And modern antitrust doctrine just isn't dealing with that problem. Or to circle a long way back to a much earlier question that I neglected to answer, modern antitrust doctrine doesn't know what to do with a Facebook or a Google when their product is air quote free, but their control over vital networks in Facebook's case, social media, and in Google's case, internet search, gives them power to harm all sorts of actors in the economy. And I can give you a good Google example if you want to, if you want to do a good Google example. <laughs> yes, please. Awesome. Let's do it. So Google, as we know, has a pretty much a monopoly on internet search, right? That's literally the verb for searching for things on the internet is to Google it, right? So yeah. They are like, nobody uses Bing, DuckDuckGo, yeah, ask Jeeves, I don't know, whatever. Nobody uses that <laughs> stuff. But that gives Google a lot of control over all different aspects of the information flow. So what Google can do is then use that power in search to preference its other products. So say you're searching for like restaurants in your neighborhood. And maybe in the case of your neighborhood, it's Yelp or it's TripAdvisor that has the best information, the most comprehensive listings, the most reviews, you're going to be able to find the restaurant you want the fastest. 
Google might send you to Google Maps or to Google Shopping instead, even though those other places have better information because Google's monopoly over search gives it that power to shift you over into its own other products as opposed to sending you to the place for the best information. There have actually been several academic studies on this. They have shown that users, people like you and me who are out there Googling stuff, prefer it when Google doesn't circumvent its own search algorithms to promote its own products. So they prefer whatever the Google algorithm would naturally show us to whatever Google shows us when it decides to boot you over to maps or to shopping or whatever. Now, why would Google do that? Because the more time you spend on Google shopping or Google maps, you're looking at more ads, which means more money for Google, because that is ultimately the goal of Google. It's not for you to like go find the like cool thing on the internet that you were looking for. It's to keep you on its platform, looking at ads until the end of time so that they can make more money. Mm. And so it's leveraging its power in search to other areas of the economy. And that's harming those other search engines. And it's ultimately harming those businesses at the end, right? Like if you go on right. and you're searching for a Thai restaurant in your neighborhood and you can't find one, because the Google listings weren't good enough and you end up going to order pizza instead, you hurt that Thai restaurant. So if these uh, lawsuits against Google and Facebook are successful, what could happen? It's hard to tell, as we talked about before, because the courts have not been super enthusiastic about finding antitrust harms. I think it's sort of too hard to speculate. And also these things are just going to take years, right? It's going to be years before we have any remedies in any of these cases. I think a far better more hopeful thing to look at is Congress, where I think there has been growing recognition that there's a problem here. And actually, I mean, we can talk about, I think there have been growing recognition uh, amongst people too. The pandemic has really sort of brought home to a lot of everyday folks just how much power Google, Facebook, and Amazon have over our life. But that has manifested in Congress too. Last year, we saw for the first time in 50 years, there was a major monopoly investigation in Congress. The House Antitrust Subcommittee put out a giant report on the name of something like Investigation of Power in Digital Markets, which sounds kind of sleepy and boring, but it was really about the power of the big tech companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, to affect your lives. And it was really encouraging. They came out with tons of recommendations, tons of horror stories about the way in which these platforms exert their power. So I would actually look there a bit more optimistically. I think the cases are great. I think it's really important that they're moving and the Biden administration should keep the Google and Facebook cases alive because they are really important. But I think the action is going to happen more rapidly at the congressional level because they have a little more capability to move stuff than a court case that under current rules is just going to take like forever. <laughs> So based on your report, there seems to be a bit of a change in the political tide and is swing towards attacking these monopolies. Has the political sway in the conversation kind of been turning? Are we at a moment of breaking up monopolies? I think we're at a new moment in acknowledging the power that they have, I think. But you can trace this back to a couple of things. You can trace it back to the 2016 election when people looked at Facebook's ability to influence that election and went, whoa. We clearly have a problem here because this private company is able to facilitate election meddling, and that's really dangerous for democracy. You can look at 2018 when Amazon decided to go shopping for HQ2 and was getting billions of dollars thrown at it by states and cities across the country. And people looked at that and lawmakers looked at that and went, that's that's not right. There's something wrong here. And then the pandemic happened. And again, people are now sort of dependent on Amazon and Google and Facebook for their shopping, for finding things, for their communication. So there was a growing acknowledgement, I think, in those three sort of buckets, in those three events, that there's a power problem here. And so I think that is all sort of built towards this current moment in which folks are very much noticing that something needs to be done. And like I swing back and forth on my optimism about American democracy, but I do think that 
folks may not understand the details and they may not get the whys and wherefores and they don't know about the consumer welfare standard and don't know about the Chicago school. And that's okay because they have this gut feeling that something is not right here. And I've certainly noticed it in my work and my interactions with folks since the pandemic, just this sort of feeling that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be dependent on an Amazon and we don't have to be okay with Jeff Bezos making you know hundreds of billions and potentially someday trillions of dollars while not paying his his workers enough and not protecting them from COVID, like that feels wrong to a lot of people. And so they may not know like the upstream causes of that, but they know that that isn't right. And I think that that sort of feeling has reached more and more and more people. And then it's re- also reached lawmakers who have the ability to do something about it. So these anti-monopoly laws are already on the books. Antitrust laws are on the books. They just change the way they're enforcing it. What can the Biden administration do right now to enforce some of these laws in the way that they were originally intended? Yeah, it's just about putting the right people in the right positions. It's about putting the right people at the Department of Justice. It's about putting the right people at the DOJ. It's about working with Congress to advance reforms to the process. The reason this Facebook and Google cases are going to take so long is because there's a lot of nonsense processes that go into a case like that. And you can work with Congress to change the process so that the cases happen faster. It's really a personnel and an attitudes question. Because as we said, the the laws are on the books, you just need to enforce them. But it's about getting people in the right positions with the political will to do it and who want to pick these fights. And I don't know how much you've been following, but there have been a lot of moves among progressives to try and get key people on the FTC, to try and get key people into the DOJ's antitrust division, to push Merrick Garland, the nominee for attorney general, and what his views on this area of the law are, because it is that key having good people in those positions who don't want to kowtow to corporate power, who haven't been sitting around in you know a Facebook C-suite for the last bunch of years trying to think of ways to protect that company um, from regulation is really, really important. Any indication on whether the Biden administration is on board with some of this better enforcement? It sort of comes and goes, I think. Right now, we're still in the as you know from doing this podcast, I'm sure, and mostly the like leak phase <laughs> of a lot of these jobs where they're sending up trial balloons to see what's going to fly and what's going to not. <laughs> we'll see. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure right now. I think there's also another important point to this is that it's an area with a lot of bipartisan appeal. You do see some movement among some Republicans, and a lot of times it's for kind of silly reasons, but you do see them trying to grapple with the corporate power question, particularly when it comes to big tech, they sort of do it under the rubric of like, uh, these platforms are unfair to conservatives. They're censoring us, blah, 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 blah. Like that's a dumb reason to be doing this because that's not really happening. But you might see a world in which they get on board for bad reasons. And I'm perfectly fine with that. Pat, thank you so much. Please, please, please read the American Economic Liberties Project's massive new report that is out. The Courage to Learn, a retrospective on antitrust and competition policy during the Obama administration and framework for a new structuralist approach. I'll link to the report on our episode description. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, anytime. Happy to be here. And thanks so much to all of you for listening. I'm Danielle McLean. You can listen to the Biden Transition Podcast on bidentransitionpodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks for more expert insight into how Team Biden will tackle America's most pressing issues.